You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello there and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I am speaking to a veritable man mountain, six foot four in his lumberjack shirt and uh, the bearded, top-knotted, definitely not a hipster, Harley Breen is uh, a really fantastic comic. He's a really, uh, he's like one of those... um, like he's a gritty club guy, but as you'll hear, he's uh, he's very well thought out. He's got he's he has got a rigorously thought out approach to smashing commercial clubs, and I really enjoy that. So, uh, without further ado, this is Harley Breen. This is your sixth festival this year. Yes, and it's the twenty second of January. Twenty second of January, ladies and gentlemen. So, tell me about that. That you are a festival comedian, evidently. Uh, well. I, I've never really liked the distinction between festival comic or club comic or whatever, but as it t- stands right now, I'm very much a festival comic. And and to put it in perspective, those six festivals, five of them were music festivals, okay, and three of them had the same name. They were just in different oh, I see, I places see, okay, in Australia. Okay, so okay. it was Falls Festival, which was in Byron Bay and in um, Lawn and in Marion Bay in Tasmania. Okay. So. Okay. And it was just fly and do a 15-minute spot and leave again. Okay. It and sounds impressive. Sure, mate. Six festivals. <laughs> I think I've totally called you on this. <laughs> and, and are these, what kind of arrangement are we talking about? Are you inside circus tents doing yeah, stuff or outside so, stages? Yeah, two. One of them was a big outside stage, so, you know, sort of a natural amphitheatre sort of situation where it's mm-hmm. a couple of thousand people and then um, the other two were inside big, huge tents, a couple of thousand in those as well. Um, and then there was the Woodford Folk Festival, which was inside a big tent that set up like a, a theatre, a cabaret sort of stuff. Which I'd never heard about before, but is apparently a massive festival. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, the it's Woodford. like the Glastonbury of Australia. I, I reckon that'd be the closest comparison. I haven't done Glastonbury, but from talking with you, I reckon mm. they're pretty similar, yeah. 
Okay. And uh, I'm, I suppose part of me in this is just wanting, because I, I know lots of British, but I think the, the largest audience for this podcast is British. They might not know you, although you have been over. Oh, a bit. I, I doubt that anyone's going to know me, even if they're Australian. <laughs> <laughs> I did the Edinburgh Fringe in 2007 and then went and did some gigs around London and then in 2009 did some gigs around um, England for different clubs. And you said this week that you would never go back to Edinburgh. No, I wouldn't. And it's not a... It's not well. I would only go back, and this is why it's I'll never go back. <laughs> I would only go back if someone went, "Hey, here's a flight and some great accommodation and a paycheck. Mm-hmm. Um, would you like to come and do a show?" Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But that's never going to happen. Yeah, Heggy's got the same thing. Yeah, I think. yeah. we should. Uh, we're we're currently here at uh, the World Buskers Festival with Luke Heggy and also Chris Turner, and uh, Heggy's been on the podcast before. Chris hasn't yet. Um, but yes, he's got. I, th- I think that's. Is that true? How Australians see Edinburgh is amongst Australian comics. Is there a sort of um, uh, a, a divide between those comics that go to Edinburgh and those that don't, and largely stay in the Southern Hemisphere? Yeah, a bit. I guess it's it's about where you want to work. Do you want to work in the UK? Then I think Edinburgh can be a useful tool if you want to go over and slug it out for five years and build up a fan base there and do that and get seen by certain agents, managers, blah, 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 Mm. then maybe it's of benefit. My focus uh, is Australia primarily because I have a a small child Mm -hmm. um, and so travelling that far away is a bit difficult now uh, and I kind of like a business to make money. <laughs> you <laughs> fool, we, you made if, fool. If we can look at this as a business, which it is, then um, Edinburgh's not a very smart business decision yes. to go there. I mean, it's you're already up against it even if you live in the UK. Sure, man. Uh, when you have to travel long-haul flights and um, try and cover all those sorts of costs on ticket sales and blah, blah, blah. Yes. It becomes a bit more difficult. I remember with uh, being with Amy Haverska and uh, Alexis Dubas, you might know Alexis, I think, um, discussing her first trip to Adelaide, which is coming up, and we were roughing out between us at a festival. We were sort of going, okay, it'll cost this much for this. And then, you, oh, God, you've got to fly, haven't you? And then you've got to yeah. pay for all your accommodation. Yeah. And I can't remember what the math, the figures did. We, we She could do it and only lose 400 quid. <laughs> and, and, it was like, and that's Then you've success. got to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's crazy. Yeah, well, it's like I could... The, the year I did Edinburgh, I had a really great run and sold basically the same amount of tickets as I did at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, whereas in Melbourne I basically pulled a wage out of the profits. It, yeah. it was, you know, it wasn't... If you'd broke it down gig by gig, it was an excellent pay gig by gig, but it was certainly a wage sure. at the end of that, whereas at the end of Edinburgh there was... a bill for like one and a half thousand pounds yeah uh that how does that even work that's that makes no sense but so yeah so you're you're as someone who predominantly stays in australia you were saying that you are sort of in a similar position to someone like lindsay lindsay webb lindsay webb yeah well we're similar in that um both of us are trying to earn money to pay for a family um even though mine's a very small family it's just me and my boy yeah uh and we're both pretty well unknown we don't um we don't, don't have, have the tv profile we don't have a huge tv profile yeah. not huge fame and we're working comics in the every sense of the word yeah mm. and is that because a, a couple of nights ago you skipped out on us to go up to Auckland to do a uh, a tv panel show yes a tv by pilot for a, a pilot tv panel, panel show. show yeah and you were a last minute replacement for someone that was ill yes the no no the great ronnie chang um some of your listeners will know ronnie, Lovely chang. ronnie chang um yeah. he uh, his flight was cancelled 
Oh, gotcha. Okay. So the whole pilot was looking like it was going to fall in a heap. Sure. And my manager went, oh, I've got a guy in the country. It was being filmed in New Zealand because it's an existing New Zealand show yeah. that the guys who know how that works filmed it as a pilot for a Australian audience. So they needed okay. uh, an Aussie comic, not a New Zealand comic, because they, gotcha. they wanted a, an all-Australian kind of lineup. So. Okay. And you were saying that you've, you've done those kind of uh, those tryouts and pilots and stuff like that. Have yep. you done any – have you actually made it to the – to the screen on any of those? No, I've not. And how <laughs> so does that? Because that, I think I was talking to somebody, talking to Lindsay about something similar to this. It's it's yeah. that thing of being like, is it almost a trap to be regarded as a jobbing comic? And that that thing of being always the bridesmaid, as it were. Yeah, you you are always available. You make yourself available. Yeah, I can do that for you. And then they go, great, that was good help. Now we're going to get the guy that's done the last ten of them. Yeah, like, oh, yeah cool. That makes sense. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. So, well, tell me, talk to me about how you actually feel about that. Um, I. Genuinely, don't care. I like my. It's. I made a snap decision because my manager called me last minute to come and do this. You, you're always on the fly trying to make the right decision for, and I'll keep referring to it as a business, for your business. And I think that was the right decision for my business. Whether or not they put me on their TV show, it's neither here nor there. I already sure. made the decision. But, but in terms of in terms of the wider idea that you are yeah. often, I mean, you've been going how long? Thirteen years. Thirteen now, years. You said. Yeah. yeah. So presumably, that a lot of people have started since you who have yes. then gone on to get the TV. Oh, plenty. Things. Yeah. And how do you how do you cope with that? Well, I and I, sp- I speak. I mean, you don't sure. know too much about my background. Yeah. I speak as someone who has seen a lot of people. You know, who were new when I was doing fine. Streak yep. ahead of me. I'm in that place. I know how I cope with it. And the answer is often badly. But, <laughs> yeah. You know, I just want to talk a bit about that because that's one of the. You're someone who every night has been uh, headlining the the bill here yeah. and following two sensational acts and successfully following them and very successfully you know, closing the night. You're obviously a headliner. Do you feel like, come on, I, I need a shot here? I, I'm not going to lie. There's obviously been moments of that. I'd be an absolute wanker if I go, no, that doesn't bother me. There's been plenty of moments where you look at it and go, well, why? Why is that guy and not me? And it and it um, it breeds bitterness. Um, it also really breeds depression. If you already suffer from that, you start getting very depressed about your situation. And and I found myself in a bit of a state about five years ago where it was starting to really be quite um, debilitating. And, and just sitting there and constantly looking at somebody else's trajectory and their career path. Um, and then a whole lot of things happened at the same time and, and one of the main ones was my son was born uh, and it it just helped me get some perspective on myself and where I was going and now I genuinely, I can say this 100% truth, I don't care what anybody else is getting. I don't care what TV show they got. I don't care what successes they're having because it has nothing to do with me. It doesn't change my business. It doesn't yeah, pay my right. rent. It doesn't pay my bills. It only, doesn't feed your kid? Or... No, only what I do is doing that. So I can only review um, and judge myself based on what I'm doing. That is great perspective. So, I mean, let's, let's if you don't mind just delving a little bit sure. further into this, because I'd love, obviously, I mean, my listenership knows how desperate I am to have a child. Great. <laughs> and I did a whole, my last show was all about it. And it would be such killing two birds with one stone if I could have a baby and then immediately not feel, you know, have yeah, this perspective yeah, shift yeah, yeah, to feel more calm. Um, but just talk about some of the the issues then as a, as a single dad. Those um, what what exact what what perspective shift are we talking about? Like in as much in as much detail as possible. What what is it that changes? Because I I've heard a lot of comics talk from the perspective of having a family. Remember they're still with their partner yeah. and going. Oh, it's focused me. It's made me realise I've got to step up. Yeah. 
presumably you, I mean, have you got like a baby in one hand and a mic in the other? Yeah, a bit, yeah, a bit some nights. It's a little bit like that. You know, it gets to the point I can't find a, a, a babysitter, a carer to come and look after him. I'm like, all right, bud, you're coming to work. Let's go. You brought your baby to gig? Yeah, sure. Yeah, which I did gig? That. Tell me about that. I've never um, the first that. one, which was a, a, just a wonderful thing to be the first one, the, the, the babysitter was late. Um, and I had to be at this gig and I was opening for Russell Howard on his Australian tour. Amazing. And I, I watched, it's a bit of a mixed up story here, but I, I saw Billy Connolly at a gig at a venue called um, Hamer Hall in uh, Melbourne in about 2005. And um, Hamer Hall's in the Art Centre precinct. It's just a beautiful, huge 3,000-seat theatre. And I was sitting watching Billy Connolly as a very new comic going... I want to perform in this venue one day. That's mm-hmm. my goal. I want to perform in this venue. And so this particular night, that's where we're on at. Russell Howard's on at the home oh hall. I get to go on and do my own bracket for 25 minutes. Yeah. And Leonard, is my boy, had to be there. And the, the wings uh, at Hamer Hall, um, it's all completely soundproof. So you can be side of stage and you can see on the stage, but you can't hear anything. And you've seen that my act over the yes. last few... I'm filthy. Yes. And I don't want my... He was then... Um, uh, just turned four, or not quite four, it was around that time of year. I didn't want my then, let's say, three-year-old <laughs> seeing Dad <laughs> saying those things, but I did want him to see me at work. And what a what better place than Hamer yeah, Hall being God. held by Russell Howard yeah, looking cute. through this little window. <laughs> I was like, this is the best. It was wonderful. Okay. Yeah. So, But let, let's get into the, so the perspective. You said your perspective changes because you think, okay, being jealous of other people isn't, isn't paying me any... It's not buying my kid food. Yeah. And I guess to be really philosophical about the moment of birth, it was was a really intense moment. Um, It's very intense for men. It's only a new thing that men even go and get involved in that process anyway. And I, in a very well... When I saw... And I don't mean this in, in any kind of depressive, negative way, but when I saw my child get born... This is going to sound full on, but when I saw my child get born, I saw my death because I, I just saw life in its purest form, and I went, oh, right, and we died. It's not like I didn't know that beforehand, but I just I saw that as a fact. Mm. And also a fact is that this brand-new life is completely dependent on me to get shit done. So it kind of took out... It just took out a lot of fakeness about life. It just made everything real and reality. It, I'm still completely focused on the art form. I'm very passionate about being a storyteller and delving into the human condition and the way that we interact with each other. But it just it turned it into a bit more of a business. I'm like, right, yeah. so he gets one life, that's it. I get one life, I want to do it right. Um, and the only thing I'm now allowing myself to be obliged to is him. Other than that, I want to do whatever I want, have, have an enjoyable life, if that means taking drugs or going out partying or staying up until the sun rises because I'm in a beautiful part of the world, whatever... I'll do all of those things uh, to enjoy them as long as they don't get in the way of parenting my child. And so it goes the same for the business. So it just made it really clear uh, and now I make decisions based on, well, what's going to keep the money rolling in for that? But also I can go, well, I don't really want to do that gig, even though it might pay well. I go, I don't really want to do that one because that sucks, that shit, that's a crappy venue, that's a bullshit corporate, they're not paying enough, whatever, and... It sounds, even as I'm saying, it sounds slightly contradictory, but it really is a case-by-case thing. And, mm. But primarily what it did, it just took all of my focus of other people out, of other people's careers and trajectories and just 
had my focus purely on what my role is now, at least for the next 18 years, just making sure that guy doesn't die. <laughs> so it's like that. I mean, that's incredible. That, I mean, that that's kind of gives me shivers in a way to to imagine that the moment of birth, it's almost like you just get this bolt of wisdom, just goes bang. Then yeah, you've leveled up ten levels. Yeah, a bit. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm sure it doesn't happen to everyone because I've talked to mates that have had children and they didn't have it. And then it also happens to a whole lot of people. It's a very, very cliched thing for a man to uh, feel a sense of mortality when when he sees his child. Suddenly get it, yeah. yeah. And you sort of suddenly get it. And it seems like this big moment, but it's just a click in life. And you don't have to have a kid to have that moment either. I've got mates that have had these bouts of bitterness about other people's career trajectories and have found ways through that Mm. to move on. And uh, I, I think that is the most destructive thing to your career is the bitterness that comes in from other people's successes. It has nothing to do with you as an individual. And this this idea of you, um, like you did you did still decide to keep being a stand-up comic because I think some people in that situation, I mean, obviously, I don't know, were you, were you still in a relationship with your partner? At the I moment was, I was at the time, yeah. And then when that eventually ended and you became a single parent and primary caregiver... Yeah, well, we, we have shared care, so we okay. try to do basically half the month each. Okay. Um, uh, and, yeah, I, I'd be primary earner. Yeah. Would be, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you, I mean, did, was there ever a moment when you thought, maybe I've got to knock stand-up on the head because that's a, yeah. that's a thing that I'm ultimately doing for fun? That's something I worry about a lot. You know, at the moment, my life is geared around what I find thrilling. Yeah. You know, and I'm thinking... I, I worry now that as soon as I have a kid, if I have that moment of clarity, my moment of clarity will maybe lead me to go, I really have to knuckle down and work yeah, in some yeah. awful office. You yeah, know? totally. And it does that. And, and that's also a really natural, cliched thing that happens to men. We we nest. When you find out that your, your mate is having a kid, you start to nest. You go off and try and grab stuff and accumulate and now what we do is accumulate wealth. We accumulate money so we can pay for all the things. When I found out my wife was pregnant, um, Al Pitcher was in town, a good mate of mine, yeah. and a lovely guy. And I said, um, "I'm going to have to go and get a job. I've just, I can't, I can't pay for this. I'm barely scraping by." And I mean, you're already within the, within the world of Australian stand-up yes. comedy, yeah. where the circuit is that much more disparate yeah. than it exists. Yes, yeah. totally. And I'm, like, I can't. I'm only just scraping by as a single man. I mean, I was married, but she had her, her own income, and I had my own, and I'll just take care of myself, really. And Al had the best answer to date, I think, I've ever heard. Because I said, I need to go and get a job. He just looked at me in the eyes and went, mate, you're unemployable. (laughs) 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 And he is completely right. At that point, I had been doing comedy for nine years, uh, full-time for... Wait, yeah, it was something like that. I think I'd be full-time for about six years. There was no way that I could go and get a job other than maybe digging holes or, mm-hmm. you know, lugging stuff as a labourer. Like, I, I couldn't sit and be told what to do by a boss, by an employer. Like, I just... I, I was no good at that before I did this. But now that, you know, I call my own shots, do what I want, go where I want, travel around, no. Nah. So it's this or die, really. So this is Harley. I, I, as I say, I think later at the end of this interview, I really felt like 
I got to know him a lot more during this conversation. I've been hanging out with him for a week. He's been a lot of fun, but uh, he was really, really honest with me, and, and we always appreciate that. And what an incredible story. I mean, I, I shan't get in the way of it. As you know, I'm away on holiday at the moment in uh, New Zealand, and I am, I'm, I'm going to assume I'm having a wonderful time. Let's, let's hope that this isn't some awful time capsule where it becomes apparent that I died. If I did, and I'm speaking to you from beyond the grave, then, God, thanks, everyone. It's been a great life. Let's try and not get too morbid, though, as we, as we move on with asking you for money. Um, in the event of my death, I would still like you to... Contr- oh, that's a good point. I should give someone the, uh, the access to the PayPal account. So that in, in the event of my death, we can have a big con-con party. This has got morbid in a way that I didn't expect it to. Um, but I do like the idea of leaving uh, time capsules for yourself. And at some point, let's face it, I am going to be speaking to you from beyond the grave. That's a chilling thought. But let's not burden this wonderful episode with the lovely Harley Breen with such negative things. Let's put those from our minds uh, and instead focus on going to comedianscomedian.com and picking a figure. Let's, let's say the figure should represent this week um, how much out of 100, the percentage out of 100, that you would like me to still be alive. <laughs> that's, that's stuck you. Let's, uh, let's, let's, yeah, let's go with that. I mean, you know. It, it's not as if you listen to these bits anyway. But um, go to comedianscomedian.com if you would like to support the show, if you would like the show to continue, if you would like to pat me on the back or buy me a pint for your many hours of listening pleasure, then please simply click on the very, very uh, visible and obvious uh, uh, PayPal button and uh, you can choose your own donation. Any amount you would like to give, perhaps a pound a show, a one-off donation of 20 quid or even more. I leave that entirely up to you. Um, and uh, let's let's send me some emails. Uh, any questions for me, for my future guests? Suggest questions you'd like me to answer them. Please, uh, I do get around to answering your emails eventually, I promise. Um, and that's it for now. Yes, so send that to uh, at comcompod or info at comedianscomedian.com. Someone said to me, um, a guy called Bav, I don't remember your full name, Bav, we had a, a, a brief email, email correspondence, uh, at which point you pointed out that in a previous show, I'd said, gosh, sometimes I freewheel these and sometimes uh, uh, I, I do them from notes. Is there any difference? And Bav was the only person who got back to me with an opinion on this. And he said, I can never tell the difference because even when you work from notes, you talk an incredible amount of bollocks anyway. So, uh, I, 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 mean, I, I mean, that's true. Here I am in your car, in your bath, in your ears. Let's get back to the brilliant Harley Bree. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So before we get on to the, the writing, the creative process, let's talk about the other thing that really sets you apart from a lot of other comics, which is the cult as you referred to it <laughs> as the other day. So just tell us about that, because I've kind of, I've, I've picked this up in snatches of conversation over the last sure. few days, but just go right back to the beginning and tell us about the cult. Well, I, I always refer to growing up in a cult, um, and uh, apologies because I have done this on stage, but it's, it's just the truth. I say, um, uh, well, you say church, I say cult. I looked up what a cult means in the dictionary, and it's a small group of people who isolates themselves from society and acts in a different way. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. The Methodist Church is a cult. But this, but, and you're not just kind of. It's not just embroidered language calling it a cult because no. you, you. I mean, there are aspects of this by which, like, you didn't listen to music. And no, you I didn't. You so, know what I mean? so I, I just don't want anyone listening to this to turn off. And go, <coughs> oh yeah, reckons he's on six festivals. Reckons, <laughs> reckons he grew up in a cult. This is quite serious. So, yeah. get, get, get into this. so, not only did I grow up in the cult, but I was the um, the son of the, the the cult leader, as it were, the the reverend, the right reverend Peter Breen. Um, the Wesley Methodist Church was its denomination. When I was two years old, my dad was a radiographer. Um, we lived in country Queensland, and then he moved the family at that stage. So it was me and two older siblings down to Melbourne to a Bible college where he did his um, degree in theology and uh, counselling and then got given his first church, which was in a little country town called Bundaberg in Queensland. When By then there was a fourth child, my little brother. And we moved up there and uh, my life was completely immersed in the church from when I was... Well, even from when I was born, before Dad was a preacher, but certainly from when I was four to when I was 21, 22. Okay. Um, and so because of that, there was – it wasn't – a lot of people will start to picture things like the Exclusive Brethrens or the Jehovah's Witness um, or even more extreme cults than that, like the Westboro Baptist Church, people like that that are really, really insular. This was much more just very middle Australia, um, middle class kind of conservative people who go to a club on Sunday believe in a shared existence. But it was still isolating in that – so there was no, um, as I made a joke on stage, there's no dancing within the Methodist religion. So that really takes out social events, at schools and stuff. You don't go to that. Um, so were you were you schooled with non-Methodist kids? Yes, yeah, so but was. you weren't allowed to go and do the stuff. Yeah, quite a lot. So sport, you couldn't go and play sport on a Sunday because that okay. was God's day. So so and all the club sport teams all played on Saturdays or Sundays, and so okay. you were ruled out from half of that. We had no outside. We didn't have a television until I was 13 years old. And even then we were allowed to watch about one show a week and all four of us had to agree on that. And there's an age split from the youngest to the oldest of ten years and trying mm. to agree with that. Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a lot of Degrassi junior high. Oh, yeah, OK. Uh, because my sister was calling the shots, the oldest one. Um, and then so there was no outside music uh, either. So I, I literally missed two decades of pop culture. Well, this was we were having this conversation about you know your top five albums, and yeah. it's great to see you who and, and for the benefit of people who don't know what you look like, as you've been described by someone recently, a lumber sexual, yeah. you're a towering bearded, <laughs> hairy man in a yeah. in a lumberjack shirt, yeah. going oh oh tell me let me make a note in my phone of, of yes. you know faith no more. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, really keen to grow. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah, yeah. So there was all of that, and then. 
and then what even I think leads itself to be lends itself sorry to be more of a cultish kind of environment is when I was when I was nineteen I I made a there was a, I had a big epiphany um, a, a big another big light bulb moment I got um, even though I, I had none of that I had secular mates and so I would I started to go to stuff like um, Music festivals. Um, okay. My favourite music festival was one that no longer exists in, in Brisbane called Livid, the Livid Music Festival. And uh, I was at that in 1999, um, at the age of 19, and got a uh, needle stick injury in the mosh pit. Someone jabbed me with a needle. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And it was a huge moment because at that point I was a, other than marijuana, I was a non-drug-taking virgin so and I'd done that because of my commitment to my faith uh so then I had to go through AIDS hep C tests all of that and you wait three months from that from the point of um injury so it just got my brain thinking for the real first time really um critically of my belief system of why why is this God that I believe in allowing this to happen and then I went wait a minute why would I think that he allowed this to happen? And then I went, who who could possibly have control over that random incident? There's no. So up until this point, you had been a card carrying Methodist. You, you joined oh, the yeah. church when you were four, a, and it, you believed in it. And it was I was a youth you. pastor. I did sermons. I was fully one hundred percent committed. I, I I went to God camps. Um, June, July holidays here in Australia, I'd always go to a camp that was just simply called high school camp, but it was just a And were they, were they fun? Were you a happy kid if you believed and actually, you know, you don't know what you... Was there a sense that you didn't know what you were missing out on? Um, there was a sense of not knowing what I was missing out on, definitely, but there was also, I, I look at it in hindsight, there was constant conflict um, with what I actually felt about the world and what I was pretending to be a part of. I was definitely a pretender. Because I was 12 years old the first time I asked Dad to leave the church. I don't like it here, I want to go. Because when you're the preacher's son, very much the church is a microcosm of society and so um, everything that happens in the bigger world happens in this tiny little insular cult group. And so because I'm the preacher's son, I am in a way like the prince of the kingdom, him being the king of the kingdom. So everything that I did was completely on review, always, constantly. If I uh-huh. And I mucked up at school and um, even though... Being this very committed Christian, I you know I drank and smoked pot when I was fourteen and have done that ever since. Um, and so, if that ever got seen by anybody else within the community, that would get back to dad, and there'd be all sorts of issues. and And I hate it. I hate people talking about me. I don't. I don't want to be involved in anybody else's conversation. And you're constantly involved in other people's lives. They they have complete ownership over you. And my older brother felt the same way. It was, it was really very difficult. So you were, was that you said that was the first time you asked to leave? Did that 12, when I was become 12, yeah. a regular? thing? Became a recurring thing. Yeah, I wanted Dad to not be in that job, which I feel very bad about because the reason I don't feel bad about saying that to Dad, I feel bad about the job that I've chosen because my boy will always be viewed as Harley Brain's son because yeah. right or wrong, I'll have a level of fame within this job, even Until the level I have right he now. Gets yeah, <laughs> which would be great, and then, and then I can be Leonard Green's father. I'd much rather that. But I just it was a it was a conflict for me being Peter Breen's son for so long, 
Um, yes, and but, I mean, and there's, there's sort of parallels there, aren't there? Obviously, total parallels. Yeah, it's, it's, in terms of like the the cult of personality, you might yeah, call it. Yeah. That you're on stage saying things you believe. You're totally. You're a very declamatory stand-up comedian. It's like this. <laughs> I think it's like this. I mean, it's, it's yeah. sort of probably a bit trite, but also maybe a bit true to think. I mean, did you? Did you? Is your? Is there anything that reminds you of your dad's? ministerial style oh, totally. in your work my first ever solo show in 2006 was called Son of a Preacher Man which mm. was the show I took in 2007 to Edinburgh and I said in that I have just remembered seeing the poster for that oh, yeah, right. say that you can't see it yeah okay yeah yeah um, and I say in that like, I watched my dad perform for 20 years yeah. for 20 years every Sunday I watched him perform of course it's going to rub off on me I've followed in his footsteps it's just that I preach a different word and have you ever have you ever spoken to your dad about those similarities constantly I have, a, I have a very close relationship with my dad who's since left the church as well around the same time that I did and has moved on in leaps and bounds so he's packed it all in what did he change his mind about it did he lose his faith what was um, no, he, no he hasn't lost his faith he is just I mean that, my dad's the son of a missionary who was the daughter of a preacher who was the, the son of a preacher like it's a multi-generational thing I mean, my ancestors um, immigrated to Australia to start the Uniting Church in Australia like it's it's been I don't know what that is is that a big it's just a big denomination okay. it's got a huge denomination okay. in Australia um, you would have it in the UK, but possibly a lot smaller. It was a split up of split off of the um, okay. Anglican Church. They're, they're all split offs of split offs mm-hmm. of split offs. It's like a Monty Python <laughs> play. Um, but yeah, so he he moved past it. Dad kind of went through his adolescence as my older brother and I were going through our adolescence. There's um, he, even though we we grew up, I still can't quite figure out how he managed to do this. But we grew up in this very strict household of cans and can't dos. He made it a point to foster uh, a relationship with us of questioning everything. So make sure you always question things. And I used to try and stumble. What about the Bible? He's like, yeah, question that. I'm like, well, you believe it? He goes, well, I've spent my life questioning it. I'm like, all right. Mm-hmm. So we we started questioning lots of stuff and and rebelling. But I never rebelled against my dad. I never found a reason to rebel. But I was very rebellious. I was the naughty kid at school. I got suspended. I got expelled. Some lots of trouble. But I've always had a really good dialogue with with my dad. That's funny. I'm just suddenly getting sorry to interrupt. But I'm just sorry. I, I'm just suddenly getting a sense of a stand-up comedian as the naughty reverend. Do you know what I mean? That's effectively yeah. what it is. Yeah. You're doing the same. You're using the same uh, tropes yeah. and conventions of performance in order to lead people astray. Yeah, you are totally. The, you're the yeah. devil. Yeah. <laughs> I got a letter about that um, <laughs> after last year's comedy festival because I talked about that I'm an atheist now and. Um, that uh, that makes me sick as well because there's so many comedians that are atheists and if there's anything worse than a militant Christian, it's a fucking militant atheist who thinks they're right because they're so enlightened. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that at all. I just think it's right for me. That's I think it's what really important. I, I read the Bible, read all of that, and I've read some other books and they made more sense. Mm-hmm. And I went, I might go with that one. And then I said to the audience, I just want you to know if there's any Christians in tonight, I don't stand in judgment of you and your beliefs as you do of me and mine, yeah. right? And it gets this little chuckle from the audience of recognition. And I got a letter from this girl calling me to task on leading people astray and that if I believe in nothing, that's fine, just don't tell anyone. 
And I wrote back to her. I took the I am getting involved. I said, I think it's a bit much of a Christian to tell an atheist to not talk about what they believe in. Mm. Fuck you. Mm. Didn't write fuck you in the letter. I was I was trying to be very calm about it. And I said, um I said, in the on the point that you said I'm leading people astray, I, I don't think I am, nor do I care that I'm leading anyone astray. Because I don't think there's anything to stray from. I'm just saying what I'm saying. And if you don't like it, you can vote with your feet and you can get up and you can walk out. And um, I'd given a line in that particular show, which at the very best is arrogant, at the end of saying, you know, um, I don't stand in judgment of you, beliefs like you do of me and mine. And then I was just having a particularly good night that night and I just went, oh, whatever, this is what you paid for, go fuck yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And she quoted that, she goes, that's not what I paid for. I paid to see a comedian, but um, just, you know, to see a hour-long stand-up show or whatever. And I said, fair enough, that's right. You didn't pay to see that. That's, that was arrogant of me to say and I apologise. Um, and then she wrote back again. She goes, oh, thank you so much for getting back. I'm a big fan. I've seen you at shows. And <laughs> I'm like, well, that's why you were paying to see exactly that. Oh, my God. And, and I besides, was. I think there's a very strong... I don't think anyone can ever say, I didn't pay to see that. Because yeah. they paid to see whatever you, Harley Brink, yes. considered to be an hour. That's exactly right. Yeah, totally. So it was, it was fun. It was good to engage. I enjoyed it. Um, I don't mind being called out by Christians. I've got a lot of comebacks in my arsenal for Christians. So yes, yes. And you're you're someone whose material is is very, or, and life I think is very rigorously thought out. You're a big fan of honesty. Yes. A couple of times conversationally, you've said just things. In the last week, you've said something like, "Oh, you know, recounting an anecdote or about a relationship or something," and just going, "I just I just said this because that's what I thought." Yes. Yeah. And I think that's a very uh, something I struggle with a lot is having uh, is being able to be emotionally honest on stage. I suppose maybe a bit in life as well. Do you? I suppose whenever I see anyone being that honest, I wonder. God, they must think that they're invincible. Do you know what I mean <laughs> that there's no there's no threat of anyone kind of a- attacking them? No, there's not. Re- well, I suppose that I, I certainly don't feel like I'm invincible. In fact, I feel quite vulnerable a lot, and. Each show I've ever done, I go more and more honest and just reveal things that I thought was going to be my dirty little secrets forever. For can all you give time. us? A, can you give us an example of the yeah, sort this of year, thing you're talking? Yeah, about? this year I, um, well, sorry, last year's festival show. Um, trying to remember exactly how it went now, but I, I, I get there somehow away, and I talk about the fact that I have tits. Right, I'm, I'm serious. Look at them; they're boobs. They're not, they look like pecs right now because they're under this checkered shirt, but they're boobs. And then I'd take my shirt off and just go, look at it, it's a tit. And then <laughs> um, I'd jiggle my tits around. And then I'd go, I'd do this thing where, you know, I'd explain why men get tits at a certain age because our testosterone uh, winds down at a certain age. That's not why I got my tits, actually, ladies and gentlemen. Just so you know, I got mine when I was 13, like most of the women in the room, um, Solidarity Sisters. And then... I go, in fact, um, I love my peculiar tits so much as a 13-year-old. I used to stand in the nude in the bathroom, poke them into the shot of the mirror, keep my head out of it and just try and run away. <laughs> right now. Well, I asked for a dirty little secret, Harley. <laughs> so the reason I'm telling you that one is that is one of the, and I'll be honest, I did that as a 13-year-old. Yeah, like, yeah. Can I make, if I stand around the side of this wall, can I make my boob look like an actual boob? Enough that you can get around. <laughs> I can get off to that. That and is that is phenomenally creative. That, you know, that's, that was uh, 19, 20 years earlier that I had that experience as a pubescent boy. 
And in no way was that ever going to be told to a single living soul. And then fast forward 20 years, I'm doing it on stage in front of, on some nights, a, a couple of thousand people. What the fuck is wrong with me? And, and, is, and what does that feel like when you, the first time you tell that story or the first thought that you have, I, I should, maybe I should do that story? Is there some part of you, is there some part of you at the back of your mind going, don't, don't? Yeah, um, the first time and for a lot of times after I'd tell the story, I'd look at the audience and just go, oh, I'm sorry. And they're having that, that sort of guffaw, um, oh, my God, but, but what did we hear but, laugh? But that's after you've had the laugh. So, I yes. mean, the first time you told it, when you didn't know whether it would get a laugh or not. I mean, there must have been a risk of you going, I did this terrible thing. Look, to be honest with you, um, and I don't think this is arrogance, I fucking knew that was going to get a laugh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, 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 so. the, the idea of a 13-year-old boy wanking to his own tits, that's always going to be funny. <laughs> like, um, I was... Um, but did you worry that they would that they would think less of you yes, for I being did. that honest? Yes, I guess that so. they'd laugh yeah. at you and then walk away going, what, a, what, a, what an what, awful what, yes. human being. I don't know, whatever, well, what a horrible little boy, you know. what a. Yeah, there's that fear. If I'm going to expose something that intimate and private about myself, that's... You know, and maybe, maybe they won't laugh. I, I had fairly good confidence in that they would, but, but also that, that I would be judged um, by that. But it's been my defence mechanism for years is to make the jokes about myself before anybody else can. So I've already, I've already had a go at myself. What's the worst that they can do? Now, this is interesting because you are, like, you're a prime physical specimen. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you're, you're, a, you're a big, hairy, muscular guy. Like, I, I sort of don't really believe you've got tits. I imagine that is probably <laughs> a relaxed come pectoral come muscle. Come on, let's yeah, see. Look, yeah, that's that's boob, like, oh, that is quite booby. That's yeah, booby. Like <laughs> okay, fine. Um, but certainly from, from the perspective of someone just seeing you, you can imagine, of, of all four of us that are gigging at this festival, when you walk out on stage, you can imagine women fanning themselves. Uh, going, oh, I don't Mr. imagine that at all. Mr. Green. <laughs> you know, like, I do, do declare. Yeah, you see what I mean? Now, you don't appear to have, um, say, physical vulnerabilities. You look like a big, strong, sure. handsome, masculine guy. Yeah. So just talk about that for a minute, the, the sort of the dynamic between the where your vulnerability on stage lies, if you have any vulnerability anymore. If, you, if you're if you a good-looking guy who could say anything about himself, yeah. do you have anything left to, to expose? Do you have, I, is there other risk to be found? I certainly hope that I have vulnerabilities. I, I don't think you should be in this job if you don't have vulnerabilities. Um, and uh, I definitely do. I'm, a, I'm, I'm an ex-fatty, um, so there's a lot of previous hang-ups and issues with body image. A lot um, of ex-fatties in comedy days. Lots of ex-fatties, <laughs> yeah. Um, in fact, I've only were just you, recently were, lost quite a lot of weight. I was so. going to say, you mentioned that before, I was going to yeah. say, were you funny while you were still very fat? Well, I've never been very fat in comedy. Okay. Ever. I've, I've always been pretty fit in comedy, but I'd blown out a bit um, post the breakup. That tends to happen. You're like, mm. where can I find um, the solution to my problems? In the end of those bottles. Let's mm. recall them. Um, and so I've just tried to get fit because I'm getting older and um, body's starting to hurt and want to be active for my kid. But as a kid, I was quite uh, a fatty. I like I didn't have wrists. You know, that type of fat where your arm just finishes at your hand. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was, uh, I had chronic asthma, so I was on steroids to help that. I was left on too long. I really blew out as I was going through puberty as well and got got quite puffy around the edges. Um, so I, I don't, I've never had a great body image. It's getting better now because it's sort of coincided with me not giving a shit. I used to yeah. really care about what people thought that I looked like. Um, but I... I go on stage 
now, in a lot of ways, feeling a little bit vulnerable because the market I work in most is Australia and we don't like a bloke who thinks he's all right. Yeah. It, it's, it doesn't go in your favour. And so I will, as quick as I can, do something self-deprecating. Yes, I've noticed. I was watching yeah. your YouTube clips and also yeah. the stuff when we've been working here. Absolutely. Yeah. You hammer yourself immediately about yeah. a beard or something yes. else. Yeah. Because... Uh, it's regardless of what you may think the women say in the audience, <laughs> um, I'm concerned about what the men are thinking as I yes. walk out. Who yes. the fuck is this guy? And that comes from when I first started going out to pubs and clubs, I was picked in fights I'm constantly. just going to say you're the yeah. guy they're going to take out first Always. in order to scare everyone Yes, yeah, because right. I'm the big guy. I'm 6'4". I'm, I'm, I get noticed when I walk, to, walk into a pub anyway, certainly in suburban pubs around Brisbane where we were living at the time. Um, and... I'm not a fighter. I, in, in fact, I think I've told you on this trip that mm. my brother and I had this, for want of a better way to put it, a pact of pacifism when I was 17. We, we, we were hanging around some pretty violent guys and we didn't want to be involved in that. So I've always walked away from fights. So I know very much that that's how I get looked at. And I don't want that from my audience. I don't want them, one, to feel like, fuck it, I've got to prove myself by fighting him, or two, feeling intimidated by me because I'm this huge big guy. Mm. So I will diffuse that immediately and let him know that I think I'm a dickhead, mm-hmm. now can we have a chat? Are we on the same level here? Can we all have a chat? Because I'm just a dickhead, mate. It's all right. So let, let's talk about the other ways in which you relate to an audience and let's maybe start talking about the writing process here. So sure. you're, you're taking a show to the news. But how does it work? What, <coughs> what order? You do... Perth, Adelaide, Adelaide Fringe. Adelaide Fringe. First, then Brisbane Comedy Festival. Yep. Melbourne Comedy Festival. Then, I'm not quite sure on this... It's either Sydney Comedy Festival next, and then New Zealand, or those two are the, okay. the opposite way around. Okay, yeah. so you're but you're you're going to be touring this this, this show, this the same show, yeah. and the show has opened yet, or it opens in Perth. It opens in Adelaide. In Adelaide, Adelaide. sorry, yeah. we're keeping Perth. Um, and so, when you're putting this show together, this is your what what number ninth show? Solo? Ninth, ninth, I think. Okay, yeah, pretty sure it's ninth. Do you? How do you keep finding stuff to talk about? Revelations to. Talk about your life. Do you feel you're going to run out ever? That yeah, you go? yeah, yes. Because, because you're you're someone, and I think I'm a bit like this as well. I write a show that is a kind of a, a each time I'm trying to go. This is who I am. Yeah. And then presumably by the ninth time you're going, I- I'm not that guy. I'm this guy. Yeah. Or I'm not that yeah. guy anymore. Yeah. Or I'm, I I thought I was that guy, but actually, if I'm more honest, I'm this guy. Yeah. Well, yes, and that's what we do anyway. We grow and we we expand our minds and change. What yeah, but do we, we necessarily grow enough within a year so no, that we can no, come back into a new mission statement? Yeah. <laughs> um, the real struggle for me, uh, and this may be similar for you as well. I, I've been watching your stuff. I'm very introspective. I talk about myself. I talk about my life, yes. my my interactions with my friends and my family and my son and my views of the world. Well, there's only so much of that. Like if I was a type of comic that observed current events and did that sort of comedy, well, that just renews itself all the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Um, or if I was an absurdist and did absurd things and crazy, wacky things. I'm not saying they're easier by any means. Sure, I'm just sure, saying sure. That but you then go, it seems like the, the, yeah. the tap never turns off. Exactly. The well, there's only so out. many yeah. stories of me wanking in the bathroom. You know, yeah. like... And believe me, I've tapped them, right? <laughs> <laughs> for instance, I'm writing a show for this year's 
um, writing a bit for this year's show about um, being a 15-year-old boy and going camping with your mates and all of a sudden finding yourselves all off in the shadows having a wank because you just... And that's another thing that not only did I think I'd never tell anyone, but I'm exposing other people's secrets Yeah, now, right. You know, and I name them on stage. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, worry about that every year. Every year I go, how did I do this? How did I do this last year? I've got nothing left to tell anyone. I've got no stories left. I've got nothing funny left to say. I don't know how I've ever written a joke in my life. Thank fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going through that right now. Yeah, oh every God. year, every year. So what do you do about it? So what's step one? Step one is allowing that to happen, is allowing that, mo- that moment and that emotion. Um, it, I just acknowledge that feeling and just let it be there and that can take however long to be there and that's the start of the writing process and sometimes that's a month of looking at a wall, you know, or sitting at a cafe and just staring off into the distance and with a pen and paper there beside you pretending like you're writing a show. But you are writing a show because that, if you force that process to go away, then you, for me, you're stopping part of the writing process and so that's a really necessary process that... that um, Already, I'm, 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 I'm cringing. I'm going, but what if I, what if I just keep letting that process yeah, happen and then suddenly yeah. it's, you've got a month left? And sometimes you just don't get it. Sometimes it's just going. And then I have certain things that will just push the next phase through. And so that might be doing something from the the wanky book, the artist way, or which is just writing for writing's sake. Just write, just just write out words. Just let your mind get a bit clear or just writing dot points of how you want it to be or I'll break the show up into a three-act structure even though I don't write theme shows anymore but I'll still three-act structure it, um, do all the sorts of things, do diagrams on paper, just get my pen moving. So it's sort of even just to get my hand, my eyes watching my hand move with ink coming out on paper can be just as beneficial to start the writing okay. process. okay. And then are you working, are you the sort of person that keeps notes throughout the year or is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've got, I've got a notebook uh, in my hotel room with another notebook in it with folded up pieces of paper, um, um, you know, a bit of scribbles. <laughs> Photos here. of things I wrote yeah. on my hands. Yes, yeah, yeah, everything. Yeah. Yeah. All of that. Yeah, totally. And then how do you go about, so you, right, so now you've, you've been doing the artist's way thing. Interestingly, uh, no, I'll, I'll come back to that. I'll come back okay. to a question I want to ask about that. But, um, so you've you've done the you've done step one you've done step two where you're like okay I'm just creating anything yeah, yeah. next well within step two I guess would be and this is to write a show not to write a bit if I'm just writing a bit most of the year it just goes oh, that's a good idea and just write a bit down but to write okay. a show this is the process um, I even though I for the last three basically four shows they're not theme shows I impose a theme on myself that I won't reveal to the audience, but it's to help me narrow down what I'm going to write about. Because from previous experience, if you allow yourself to write about anything, most often you'll write about nothing. Mm-hmm. If you just the whole... The, I mean, the, the subject matters that you can write about in the world, the, the experiences and the things and blah, 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 there's just so many, it's, it's infinite. Whereas if you narrow... If I, I find if I narrow it down and, and put it down inside a, a more confined subject matter then my mind starts going, oh, remember that story? A subject that, that. You, that you plan never to reveal to the audience? Not as a, not, yeah, I just, I'm not going to put it into, anyway, guys, the show's about this. Yeah, that's such a good tip. That's such a good tip. If they figure that out, well, yeah. well done them. But yeah. it, it's, it's for me in the writing process, not so that I can have a nice wrapped up piece of 
themed show to deliver to an audience. Yeah. That's, uh, this, I may have said this on the show before, but the, there is, like, I have a kind of running joke whenever I see someone's title of their show, like mine was Extra Life last yeah, year. Yeah. I always secretly hope that the performer will finish the show with a line, and that's when I knew that I really was Extra Life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, game of show. Bow, yeah. glitter cannon, yeah. walk off stage. Yeah. Yeah. And, but no, I really like the idea of having a theme that, that you're not even necessarily planning to hide, but a theme that you're not planning to explicitly yes. say for the reason. Like. Yeah, for instance, this year's show is called Just a Fully Naked Encounter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the thing that I'm... Uh, the, the, the subject that I've sort of... The theme I've imposed on myself is um, exposing myself, being exposed. It fits the title. Um, it's very easy to write to. So being exposed in terms of being a newly single man, being very exposed with potential partners, being exposed in front of my child, mm-hmm. um, in the, anything I say is on show, being exposed mm-hmm. um, as a man, being exposed as a son. So uh, it's very it's very broad, but it still has helped my brain. Yes. So when I grab something, I, then it goes, which way am I going to write and, the story? And, and where, did the, where did you get the being exposed bit from? Was that a thing that you wrote when you were doing your creative writing exercise and you started to think about it? Or is it a thing that you decided, do you know what, I'll try that. And like, is, it, is it one of several things that you started writing about that you then picked? Yeah. Well, I, how, did that, how, did that kind of, how did that filter down from...? Well, I guess so I came up with the title... Um, first, usually that's how I okay. do it. Um, I just go because you've got to title a show something. You know, you've got to register these yeah, yeah, festivals yeah. for months and months. Might and months as well, might as well try and get some creative benefit yeah, out of yeah. that position. Yeah. So I've you know the last three. One was called some kind of something. Last year was called the secret to being awesome, and this year is called just a fully naked encounter. And in every way, they are one hundred percent poking fun at the idea of fucking naming a, a, a stand up show. My stand up show is called Harley Brain. That's mm-hmm. what it's called. Mm-hmm. That's all it's called. That's what it is. It's an hour of me. That's it. But the festival, certainly in Australia, uh, and, uh, and it's the same in Edinburgh, they work on this title. You have it. It's Harley Breen, blah, 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 blah. So, and I used to really try and get something that would hook people in and sell tickets and it's a great grand idea. And then I went, what do I care? Just call mm-hmm. it this. So title was first and the title came from a girl who I met in Edinburgh in 2007, who were quite fancy. Um, and there was a chance we were going to see each other again after years and years of not hanging out. And for anyone doing maths, I was not with my wife in 2007. <laughs> we had broken up for the year. Um, so I said something to the effect of, be great to see you at some stage, and she wrote back, yeah, um, for just a fully naked encounter. And I just loved the way that it read. Yeah. <laughs> And so I went, what a great title for the show. And she goes, you should call it that. And I went, done, I will. And she still can't believe I'm doing it. Great. Called that. So then I had to think about, all right, well, what is that about? What is that about? Um, that title, even though it's not going to be about anything, what, what, what can I write to in this? And I was having some particularly vulnerable moments as a single father at the same time, feeling really very isolated and alone and that everything I was doing was wrong and incorrect because... I'm, my son's not getting the attention he deserves, I'm not being the dad I should be, I'm saying the wrong things in front of him, blah, 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 and just feeling in every way very exposed. So I just went, well, I'll, I'll write about that. I'll just write about being... Comp- and, and not only write about it, but completely expose myself on stage. Just it's all of the... Everything's coming out. Just like I'll say whatever. It's all there. Mm. Have there been times where you've just said whatever and it hasn't worked? Yeah. Have there been times when you've said... 
you know, it's like a fear I have is that, that I'm going to go, you know, when you talk to yourself in the mirror, for example, and, uh, and I worry that, well, I, and, you know, I've, I've got a bit about talking to yourself in the mirror that I'm gradually making work. But there's certainly been times when I've done it that people have just looked at me like, we, we don't do that. Yeah. You're weird. <laughs> yes, there's definitely. Right. Well, there's one that you've seen me do uh, on stage here talking about having to buy hemorrhoid cream. Yes. That is, um, I've been trying to get that to work for a fair few years now. And I think... <laughs> the bit. <laughs> the bit. <laughs> that cream just won't work. Um, I finally made it work because I've turned what was a whole bit just into a punchline of another bit. Yes, okay. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely moments. Okay. Certainly in really exposing moments. So no one wants to... Well, I was about to say no one wants to hear about hemorrhoid cream. That's not the truth. Everyone wants to hear about hemorrhoid cream because it's a very private moment. If anyone's ever gone through it, they've done it on their own. And so for someone to then act the clown... Mm. and talk about it is is can be completely liberating for somebody that's had hemorrhoids and had th- that issue. Sure. But they want to hear about it in the right way. They don't yeah. want to feel uncomfortable about it. They don't want to feel uncomfortable for you. Yes. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about the editing that you do then. Do you... Yeah. Do you you strike me as someone who probably has an idea, sketches a few notes out, and then tells it on stage times. It's exactly what times I mean. a lot of times. Yeah. Absolutely, because yeah. your stuff is very flowing, very natural. It runs yeah. into a you know, a, as opposed to like out of uh, just to pick Luke Heggie as an example, who works yes. every night. Every line is balanced and written and and thought of. Yes. It's, it's like you know, one line is woven into a story. Which so, I love, by the way. I love yeah, his man, style, and I and I know I've talked about the process with him. Yeah, he's very written, and I'm. I have never ever written anything word for word that I've been that I've delivered on stage. Not sure. once. I have written out shows word for word because I've had a director. Yeah. Um. So they needed a script. Yeah. That script was really just. Um, <laughs> it was an interpretation of what was going to be done on stage, or what was on stage was an interpretation of the script. And are you are you recording and listening back and making notes, or are you just living it in the in the moment and then editing it as you go and remembering it? Because I, I find yeah. I can't remember. I said something great in that What's Up story bit the other night. I yeah, can't, I can't remember what it was. Yeah, I I have done a bit of recording. I find what I do what's really beneficial if I record it. I find I remember it. If I don't record it, I don't remember it. Yeah. But I very rarely listen is what I'm saying. Yes, I see what you mean. Yeah, um, okay. If I know that, if I've got <laughs> the knowledge that it's yeah, there, yeah. I'm like, it actually sticks in my head. The other problem I have with recording and listening to it, because of the way I write, in that I do write in a really fluid way and just let it happen in a moment, the first time I do a joke, especially a really exposing joke, um, you know, at a tryout room in Melbourne, say, quite often it'll go its best it will ever go in the history of that joke because of the sheer nervous energy I have yes. to tell it. Sure. And it's it's not told very well. It's it's dysfunctional and it's just too many words and there's noises and I'm just trying to sell the thing and, it, you know, it has this wonderful moment. If I record that and listen to that, all I'll be trying to do is recreate that moment rather than do what I need to do, which is write that joke so it's bulletproof every time. Yes, because at the moment... You can't be... You can't put yourself back in the same shitting yourself can't. slash super brain state. Couldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. So... And I, I think I've done that in the past, definitely. I've gone broke trying to recreate a, a, a beautiful confluence of accidents. Yeah, and it, that's just all it was. But that doesn't mean a joke doesn't exist in there. There's definitely a joke in there. And I will get that to a point where, in one way, it's better than that because... I should be able to get a laugh off it every single night in every single room, no matter what the situation. 
it just won't be as joyous a moment as that was for me. Yes. Getting that ridiculous result from this nervous, oh God, yeah. please let this be funny. And, and what, what sort of, what things are you going towards when you know that you've got a potential Harley Breen bit on your hands? Yeah. What are those, what are those things? What, what, um, like how do you know when you've got something? No, that's the wrong question, obviously, they laugh. But um, what, do <laughs> you, what do you do to turn a bit that kind of works into a bit that really works? Have you got structures that you use to go, oh, there's, there's something in here, I'd better X, Y, Z it to find that? What, what's that process? Um, when it gets to a point, once I've started doing it on stage, it really is keep doing it on stage. If a bit's just not working and I've tried it three times and it's still going nowhere, um, at this time of the year... It's out. Yeah. Like it's, I was just thinking, oh, when I've done that three times, I will try it another 12 times and then bin it having wasted all my time. Yeah, because I've got notes at the moment for, like, all dot points and longer scribblings for my new show that if I did all of them, the show would go for a couple of hours. So I'm not going to waste time trying to make a bit work if it's not working because I don't have a theme show. It doesn't matter. I don't have to get it to work. I'll just put something else in and hopefully I can get that to work. If it's half all right, I will make sure I tell a few of my mates at the gig, please watch this bit mm-hmm. and help me out with it afterwards. Mm-hmm. And that has been absolutely invaluable over the years. I've had mates help me out with so many bits. Like that um, story at the park that I tell about that kid coming up and saying that yeah. he's Batman. Yeah. I had done that for a, a year on stage at just at Triton. I was trying to get it right. And I found like it was a funny story. I was like, why can't I get this story to it just it sort of petered at the end and didn't do anything. And then my mate, Carl Chandler from um, Melbourne, said, well, why don't you turn to the kid, and this is not going to have great context for your listeners, but sure. turn to the kid and because this kid had called himself Batman and he's now screaming at me and look at him and go, aren't you Batman? I'm pretty sure your parents are dead. Yeah. <laughs> and because I got this great resolution to the story, that yes. then the story really had confidence. Yes. I could tell that story with pure yes. confidence because I knew that end point was going to work. Sure. And that took somebody God, else's just, eyes. You just made me think, God, I've got some good bits that don't end. You know what I mean? I've got <laughs> yeah, some bits yeah. where there's definitely jokes in the middle and I've yeah. just been them because like, I don't know how this ends. I don't know yeah. how to get out of it, so I can't get into it. Yeah, I'm, I suppose you can get into it. You just keep getting into it again yes, and again until yeah. you find a way out. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes that'll help you with all the bits. Once you find a way out, you're like, yeah. It's, it's why quite often I'll, tr- I'll start working on the closing on my show. Once I know how I'm going to end this show, it gives me confidence to go... I can I can stink for fifty minutes. That's going to work. Mm-hmm. That's going to work there at the end. Mm-hmm. It probably wouldn't if you stunk for fifty minutes. <laughs> People will leave. But yeah, I, I think it can be a it can be a positive way to work backwards. You mentioned the artist way, and you mentioned it was um, you you said in a slightly self conscious way. You kind of said, "Oh, this sort of this wanky artist mm-hmm. way thing." When you describe it as wanky, yeah, what are you protecting yourself from? Uh, that's that's a very interesting question. I'm I'm I didn't I didn't think I was protecting myself. I'm more trying. I'll just be purely honest. I've never read it. I was given it. I've been given it twice. You're a writer. People know <laughs> you, are. you can do, do this. Know, I've never read it. No, nah, I've never read it. Frequently, uh, frequently mention it, and I, I stroke my beard and go, mm-hmm. yeah, "I've had it described to me." <laughs> oh, yeah, and yeah, exactly. I think that I can. I, I guess I know what's in that book. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it at home on the shelves, and uh, I've read a. I'd either read a bit of it or someone had told me that this was something from the artist way. And it was just the, just to write out a stream of consciousness. Yes, I'm familiar with that. And I've really suffered 
uh, before I was a stand-up comic with, um, uh, I suppose you call it a mental illness, whatever. I don't just with my own demons in my head, just noise. I have constant noise in my head, and so I, I did that well before I was ever pursuing the arts. It, it was just writing, writing, just writing, writing those feelings out, just getting them out. This wouldn't be the Comedians Comedian podcast if we didn't spend a moment or two <laughs> on the demons in your head. What, what do you mean, noise in the background? Um, oh, just so much noise. Uh, one of the biggest, the loudest voices I had in my head was from when I was 12 years old, started at 12, was uh, that I was gay. And I had that, and because I grew up in an incredibly homophobic um, organisation destructively so homophobic, um, that it, I had what I would call pure homophobia. I was genuinely scared that I was going to be gay because then no one would love me, no one would like me, and that was audible noise in my head for very minimum of five years, from 12 to 17. Jesus Christ. Um, and I pretty much three, I would say three nights out of the week... I would wake up in the middle of the night and knock on Dad's door and have to have a chat because he'd always say, make sure you talk about things, talk it out. So, fall bastard so you would were, regret saying that. Because yeah. I'd be, you know, three in the morning. And you were being it. honest with him. You were saying, I'm having these thoughts. Yeah, I'm having just being these... very honest. Thank yeah. God you had him to talk to. Absolutely. Ironically, he's part of the reason that I had these fears anyway because he was a part of the homophobia, which he's definitely grown out of, uh, moved on from, paid penance for, made apologies to the gay community um, and, and made some great steps in growth in his own world. But... It was all of this horrible shit that gets said in Christian churches. And, and if you're a Christian listening and you go, oh, no, I'm not like that, oh, great, you're in the minority. Like there's, there's a lot of destruction being delivered to the gay community from the Christian church. And um, so, yeah, that was, that was very loud noise. And it, it all stopped when I met a gay guy. It all it just all stopped. Because you went, oh, he's gay, I'm oh, not. You're just a dude. No, I didn't. Oh, I no, see what you mean. Just okay, when you're okay. just a bloke. I don't even care. Sexuality is really fluid anyway. And I, I kind of wish that uh, I, I had understood homosexuality a lot more because I would have played around with it a, a yeah, bit right. um, as a younger man. Ah, fuck it, I might play around with it now too. I sure. don't know. But the reason it stopped, the reason the noises all stopped is because this gay guy was just a guy. He was just a human being. It didn't. And you mean didn't anything. make you love him any less, or no, like it was him just any less. Your, yeah, exactly. So you got a bit didn't of perspective make, on it because you were within yeah. an environment where you didn't know any gay people. No, oh, well, well, I'm sure I did, but yes, yeah, no, any out. Yeah, yes. yeah, I see. No, no, no gays in 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 the uh, environment I grew up in at all. Because if it wasn't the church, it was it was rough and tough, um, bogan suburban Australia. And that must what you described very aptly, I think, is pure homophobia. That must be the root of homophobia. The, you know I what think I mean? so. Who, yeah. Like, all it takes is one person thousands of years ago to go, that would be bad, mm. and then, you know, one in five men or whoever it is, yeah. whatever the number is around him, go, oh, Christ, maybe that's me. Yeah. I better hate and fear that. And, yeah. You know, Christ. Because I've got uh, no actual um, fact behind these numbers that I'm going to give, but I would <laughs> go as far as saying 100% of men, as they go through puberty, start feeling attracted to men. It's yeah, a very natural sure. thing. We're becoming a man and we look at men and we go, oh, I... I like that. That's why we, you know, we love footballers or sportsmen or whatever and we love it. And and part of that may very well be physical attraction because you're attracted to that, that strong alpha. And it gets 
it gets squashed by by what I would call negative masculinity. Push down. No, don't do that. Don't be attracted to a man. That's horrible. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, young boys who don't know what they're going through and what they're feeling can't even talk about it. And so all of a sudden prejudice grows and and these horrible situations that we're still in, in, in what's meant to be an evolved modern society of guys hating on other guys simply because of private sexual activity. It makes no sense. It's like, well, just get over it. Give your mate a hand job. It probably feels good. <laughs> I, I want to finish then with God. There's two. There's, there's two things. We, we'll try. We'll try and rattle through both of these. Cool. One is what do you feel as a? You're a very capable comedian. You're at the height of your powers. You're nine sure. nine shows in. Yeah. It's all whether it's going off on TV or not. You know. There's and what. Let's just digress on that for a second. Why? Why do you think you have yet to find your place at the table, TV wise? Um, I guess, and I and I and I should preface this by saying, I guess none of us really know because you are you're, we we never no. get to be in the rooms where the no, decision makers no. are making the decisions. Yeah. But what's your what's your appreciation of that? I would say, given, given your ability to unequivocally kick the roof off a room, yeah, I, I've got in my own way a bit. Um, certainly, I've I've. Um, very passionate and driven towards live and have made decisions in the past that may have gone against me, not not like I've burnt any bridges, but just gone, I'll choose that one rather than that one. And, you know, I, I can even look at mates who chose the other one and went off in this direction and are now doing a lot of television. Um, I'm also, you've seen me, I'm very big, loud, energetic, quite blue, swear a lot, those things are all very difficult for television. Not a lot of television in the world that I have this guy on yeah. for, the, for the majority of what I do. That's not to say I can't clean myself up and behave myself. I've had to do that on the mm. limited TV I've done. Um, well, to a point. Uh, <laughs> um, the other thing is I, I'm, uh, I think what I do on stage is, is unique and unique to myself. But on paper, well, just another white boy. A lot of white boys in Australia doing comedy and a lot of them doing very well and, and, and already very successful and very gifted and talented. There's not a lot of spots in there. Um, so that's definitely gone uh, against... Well, not against me, but that's been a contributing factor to not getting a lot of television. And then I have stupidly, as what, what a lot of comics do, and if any young comics are hearing this, the first guy to offer you management, just say no regardless. Like, just say no. Just You need, really need that's to know who you are. Because yeah. I think there's a period in your career where, regardless of who it is, just don't have management. Figure out your voice first. Figure out where you're going. And I had management really early who just sat on me and did nothing. And then, and that was my fault because I, I went, they're going to do stuff. Mm. I'll just wait. Mm. And they didn't. And then the next one was the same. And then the next one was really active but then went bankrupt really quickly. And then the next one was the same. And then the one I have now uh, is very passionate about me and who I am and what I do on stage and really wants to work with me and I've already been on TV twice with them. So it's like it, it all... It, the things that I've done in my career had to happen for me to find this partnership with him and, you know, maybe there'll be more TV in the future and that'd be great because that'll sell more tickets to live shows. Mm-hmm. But if it doesn't, I'm selling enough tickets to pay my bills if I can keep doing that. And, and in t- that's a, thank you, that's a really good answer. Um, in terms of your ability as a comic... This is where I was going with this originally. Yeah. What things do you think are still beyond your grasp? I love asking people this. What, yeah, like, you're good at the things you're good at. Yeah. What things are you not good at? What things do you, do you wish you would be better at? 
Okay, there's two separate answers to that because there's I can tell you things I'm not good at, or I can tell you things I wish I was better at. Go on, things I'm not good at, I'm not that concerned with at all. I don't care. Like, in fact, it's my favourite things to watch on stage is the things that I'm not good at yeah. and have no desire to be good at. Yes, so because was, you're not kicking yourself thinking, I wish I thought Don't need that. to do it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I love it. I love a good prop act, I'll tell you just what. Just go, fuck, look at that guy. <laughs> it's, it's like Chris here doing his improvised rap. Yeah. Amazing. The, 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 his brain works that quick yes. to do that stuff. And I don't, not once have I watched that going, I wish I could develop that skill. No, I, I don't want to develop that skill. I don't want to do that on stage, but I can still sit and watch it and go, that is, that's amazing. There's plenty of stuff like that that I really enjoy watching. Um, what I wish I was better at... Um, I wish, and I, I've, I've been trying to really work on this. I, I want to be able to write outside my own paradigm, outside my own existence, and write stuff that, uh, write a story that I didn't have to be existing, um, or make a make an observation about the world. Write a balls out funny joke about the refugee situation in Australia. I've written one for just about every show I've done, but they're usually hidden within other jokes to make a very quick, subtle point because I don't think the stages should be a soapbox. But, you know, I'd love to be able to sit down and, and I can do that. I've just got to sit down and get to work and have a better work ethic. And so, you know, I guess I'm saying I wish I could be more functional and the only one getting in my way with that is me. All I need to do is sit in my room more, type more, explore that that process of writing more rather than just allowing moments to happen to me and me get on stage and just try and fabricate a bit out of it and relay it back to an audience. I'd like to work on that, I think. Yeah. So this, this is the last thing I wanted to ask about is the the relationship between the the real you and the surface you, whether that's the the persona that we see on stage or the persona that you carry with you through life like do you think that you tend to narrativize elements of your life like calling it the cult yes. you know calling yes. saying oh it's my sixth it's my sixth festival this yeah. year yeah that's kind of a sort of a you know a, a, a witty fun sort of it, it's no, I don't mean this in a mean way, but it's self-serving. You know, it, yeah. it builds the story of you. It, yeah. tell, it, it, it sows the tapestry of you socially to people. Like, you've been very uh, candid with me now in a way that I really yeah. appreciate. And I've gone, oh, yeah, OK, I get you now because I've only... We have, I mean, we met once about ages sure. ago. But in working with you this week, I guess I've seen you kick the ass out of gigs, drink hard, talk hard, you know. Yeah. And and there hasn't been as much vulnerability as we've had in this conversation that sure. I've really that I've really enjoyed. And I suppose in talking to you I've kind of gone, "Oh, I kind of get it. You're not a tough guy. The pacifist thing does suit. Yeah, you did used to be fat. I kind of get who you yeah. are. You you seem though to have very successfully built a version of yourself that can talk about those things whilst no longer being yeah, an unhappy fat kid. I'd say that's very accurate. I I want my act, my act on stage is a caricature of myself. It's not it's not a character. It's just a heightened version of actually me. And I want the audience to think they're getting the real me. And I want them to think that they're being brought into my life, into Harley Breen's life, the, the comedian, and give them everything that they want because people love a story. They love a bit of dirt. Bring them all in, but they actually get none of me. 
They don't actually get me. They just get the act that I'm choosing to deliver to them. And they can backfire sometimes. People think they know you. They go, oh, I know this about you. I know your kid, blah, blah, blah. You go, you don't. You know, that comedian's But wouldn't kid. it be more interesting to give them you rather than a fictionalised version of yourself? Sure, I would, because if I could do anything in this life... Uh, on stage to earn my money, to pay my rent, to pay my bills, I would be a storyteller, a proper storyteller. I would sit on stage and I'd tell my stories and I would talk like this to an audience. Absolutely, I would love that. And you know what? There aren't a lot of gigs that are going to pay the bills on that. There are a lot of gigs for a guy that goes on stage and tears the roof off. Yes, you know, yeah, but, but is that... I'm sorry, that sounded arrarrogant like I was referring to No, 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 to not at all. I've, I've said you, you've done this yeah. several times. And I but if you're a comic, you go out and balls out, bang, bang, bang. But then... does do you think that that almost has <laughs> a sort of a glass ceiling career-wise? If we're, if we're putting you in the same bracket as someone maybe like Lindsay, who is a great working comedian but doesn't have a big TV profile, yeah. you don't have a big yeah. TV profile, do you think that part of that might be because you're not giving us as honest a version of yourself no, I don't think so at all because, um, you know, one of the most successful comedians in Australia is a guy named Dave Hughes, Hughesy. Um, everyone thinks that's the real him. That's a complete made-up character that's, that's a heightened a version point. of him. I, so, I, say, I don't know him, but it, yeah, I get what you, you know, and that, the, the same goes for just about... I could just list just about any comic who looks real on stage. It's not them. It's mm. not them at all. No, I don't think that's got in my way at all. Um, and I'm always in the pursuits of being more honest and more real and giving mm. them more. Well, that's why it's so fascinating, because you are. You're all about the the, yeah. r- the revelations. I just wonder if there is a version of you that can be... Yeah, I guess it's, it's really interesting to hear, well, yeah. that, to hear that you want to do a storytelling thing yeah. whereby you can be as honest as we've been. Yeah. And very is there people. no way to be that honest and make it... Well, there is, there is, because I'm, I'm sometimes uh, like purely honest on stage, but also you need to then twig that story and twist that moment so that it's funny. I, that's how I look at it. I want number one. If you're a stand-up comedian, number one of everything you say and do on stage, it should be funny. That should be your absolute number one focus. In in my very intense one-sided opinion. Yeah. Are you a stand-up comic? Have people paid a ticket to come and see comedy? Then focus on funny. Get it funny. But there's a whole lot of other things that you can do mm. within trying to get to that funny as well. You can make a comment uh, about the plight of refugees and about um, male privilege and about homophobia and about um, negative masculinity. You can do that. Just make sure it's not preachy. This, and I'm More than anyone, I'm saying this to myself. Make sure it's not preachy. Don't drill it down people's throats, jam it down people's throats. Have a funny punchline. Thanks, man. No worries. Harley Breen, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Great guy. A really real pleasure to talk to him and to get to know him better. And some really good stuff in there. I love this idea of writing to a theme that you don't tell anyone about. That's great. And lots of lots of other bits and bobs beside. I, I, I really enjoyed that, as well as the elements of that chat that were just a, a conversation with a really decent guy. I hope one day to meet Leonard. Uh, I've got an image of him as a sort of nine-foot-tall four-year-old. Um, so that's that's Harley. That's all from me. Thanks to Harley for coming along. I, I forgot to do the thanks at the end of uh, uh, the previous episode, so you'll just need to remember that, as always. Thanks go to Olivia Phipps uh, for Podmin. And uh, the other pod, the other chief podblin uh, is, um, which is not Grem, is it Gremlin or Goblin? I can't remember. Someone explained to me on Twitter. Um, chief 
Pod Blind is uh, Nathan Wood, who co-produced this episode. Thanks to you for listening. Thank you for all the donations you've been sending. I really appreciate them. Um, thanks for listening. Happy days. Happy day. Who says happy days? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.